0: Hello and welcome to The Risk Opportunity, a series brought to you by Zurich Insurance Group. I'm Danny Houston, a financial analyst and broadcaster. I've been covering finance and business for more than 20 years. The race to achieve net zero continues at pace. Initiatives such as the EU's Green Deal reflect the importance nations are placing on the role of business in reaching national and international net zero targets. In this episode of The Risk Opportunity, we consider how business can help the world achieve its goal. We'll be taking inspiration from Zurich Insurance's recent report, Accelerating the Climate Transition, Long-Term Thinking for Near-Term Action, to explore how corporations are playing their part in helping the world reach net zero. And we'll also explore how they're mitigating the impact of global risks and harnessing technology, to create business opportunities for a sustainable future. With me today are Anita Holgoshi, Zurich Insurance Group's Sustainability Business Development Director for Zurich Resilience Solutions, and Fabian Safati, a strategic consultant and private investor with a long-term commitment to net zero and decarbonizing the grid. Anita Fabienne, welcome to the Risk Opportunity Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. Anita, how did tackling climate change become part of your professional life? Because clearly you're passionate about it.
1: My father is a forest engineer, so I also grew up actually with a very close connection to nature and forests. So this has been always very important for me that we have to do something to protect the environment. And then you start looking for opportunities that what you could do and how you could contribute.
0: And Fabienne, what about you? How did you get involved in tackling climate change? I got involved with uh, environmental lawyers. Uh,
2: at the beginning. And um, it was Clyde Earth in the UK. And at the time, they were tackling litigation cases against the EU and against European governments to force them to put the existing environmental laws in place, which was not happening. And I came from a perspective of helping small companies who I thought were game changers, so in the context of social entrepreneurship, uh, looking for those that were really ringing about systemic change to the industry they were operating in and discovered them and started working with them. I understood the power of the rule of law to make change happen on the climate space.
1: And Anita, what you're doing at Zurich is about making those changes happen. Exactly. And uh, this is something which is an extraordinary uh, topic, I think. And, and, and it's really a big opportunity because we are working with customers and we are implementing change together. I worked in startup environments in the social sustainability, financial inclusion phase, or also mid-sized companies in the energy sector. And definitely you feel the drive. But what I really appreciate now in the corporate environment is the scale that we have and the impact that we can have with other large-sized companies.
0: Net zero is an absolutely massive feat to achieve and it's clear that business can't do it on its own, government can't do it on its own, everybody needs to be involved in this.
1: I think definitely there is a need for collaboration between the public sector and the private sector as well. And then we can work together on finding solutions to the challenges that we might face in our individual attempts?
2: Look, I think the the big areas where we are now working together is obviously environmental regulation and legislation. I do think this is more cooperative than it was in the past. Another way in which that cooperation is working is subsidies. So the US, because the US doesn't like to regulate things with taxes, they do that morally with subsidies and the IRA is an incredible example of how, you know, business is benefiting from government intervention in the form of these huge subsidies. And the other one, obviously, is taxes, the whole taxonomy and the existence of a carbon tax in all European legislations, but not in the US, for example, or the border carbon tax adjustments between European countries. All these things are, are ways in which the government is giving positive incentives for company to move in that direction and to invest
0: in climate change technologies. And Anita, are you seeing changes in companies' attitudes to making sure that they're on the right side of regulatory changes, that they are looking for subsidies and
1: and trying to avoid tax risks? Companies are acting. So even if we are looking at transition, setting up transition plans to to reach net zero by 2050 or which uh, year they are taking as uh, as their target, there is a movement and there is action. And we also see actually this financial element that you you might be pointing to that definitely now climate risk impacting the bottom line, the revenues and the profits of the companies. So definitely there is a move towards integrating climate risk into the core of business and also into the strategy of the companies. And we also see. Which, of course, as an insurance uh, company, th- is delightful for us because it's in our DNA and in the focus of attention. Is that a lot of companies are putting more and more effort also into the adaptation measures to introduce and implement adaptation measures.
2: Companies in general are pretty nimble organisms, and they, you know, they they adapt quite well to what they need to do to survive, as opposed sometimes to you know larger entities like a government.
0: Because Fabian, without mitigating against these risks without planning, without factoring in what needs to change to make companies resilient. It will impact their bottom lines. It will impact uh, their relationship with their consumer, and it will impact their ability to hire skilled workers. What I do see is a growing understanding of
2: companies in their DNA that to stay competitive, they need to develop an approach to managing the risk and developing the resilience around climate change issues. So that manifests you know, in different forms of sophistication. At least they will prepare for risk. But the most sophisticated ones are now really developing scenario planning, and I'm helping uh, some of them do that. Scenario planning to convert uncertainties into narratives
1: of the future. Anita, you must be part of that. What we see with via some of the companies that we are working with, that only compliance is no longer enough. Of course, it's mandatory and uh, you have to do it. But uh, at the same time, you must leverage your data and ESG data and your actions to actually drive financial and operational value as well within the companies. And we see it via the stakeholders with whom we are working that more and more stakeholders are, are entering the discussions because certainly implementing any kind of actions related to managing climate risk within an organization requires a very broad collaboration across the different internal stakeholders in a company. I think we are definitely seeing that risk managers are stepping up or we see that they are having more and more importance and space to influence the efforts of a company and actually also shape it how they want to implement and of course also integrate valuable input and insights into the actions which are taken. It's absolutely my experience. If you look at Which companies
2: have made which kinds of net zero commitments across the landscape of the largest companies on the world, for example, until such time, you know, as it is a voluntary commitment that you do for compliance reasons, really, we will not get the traction that we need to meet the numbers we're trying to meet accounting for our emissions and that have a direct impact on the balance sheet is what we need. And as long as we don't, you know, dare go that way, there will be little accountability, a little consequence for
0: those who don't meet their targets. Because we have had some pretty big commitments, net zero targets, but how do we know how genuine they are and how achievable they are? And also, if they're being achieved, Fabian? So at a country level, I believe there's about
2: 27 countries or a little more who have passed laws uh, to embed their net zero commitments in their legislation. And those are believable because there's a number of, you know, budget agreements, multilateral agreements, etc. around them that will need to be broken if you break your targets. So I think that has some solidity to it. But in the corporate space, it's a different story. There's an initiative of the UN, which is called the UN Race to Zero, that uh, about 8,000 large companies have signed up for, but we have no way of enforcing those. Right. It's a it's a voluntary commitment. Having said that, I still think it's a very good thing to have. And I still think, you know, the role modeling is very important and establishing industry standards is very important. So I'm not saying, you know, forget corporate commitments. So what I'm saying is we need to go one step further.
1: We have to take more action and we have to go one step further. But at the same time, I would also like to highlight that I think uh, if we are looking at numbers, then there is a large proportion of large corporates and companies who are actually taking their net zero plans and transition plans, and they are also taking actions on implementing them. And one element that I would also like to mention, I think, is the influence that these companies can actually also have on their own supply chain or value chain. Zurich is also working with its own suppliers to actually try to educate them, provide climate risk related uh, training, and also we are working with an external partner who is giving access to our suppliers to a carbon accounting software and help them in in that way. Because innovation must create huge opportunity, in ita. Technology is um, a key enabler of delivering on the transition plans that the companies have in space. At the same time as an insurer, we also see that innovation is very important for us as well, because we want to accompany companies. We want to work with them in implementing uh, their transitions. And actually this will also require us as insurance company to innovate in products and services. And I
0: imagine, Fabienne, that this is part of conversations that you're having with businesses that you work with. But those conversations must differ depending on the size of the company, depending on whether they're a startup or they're incredibly established. Small companies
2: do have very specific challenges in that space. So I can think of, first of all, they have one big advantage, which is they tend to be more nimble and better at adaptation in general. But they have a lot of disadvantages. They suffer more from externalities, maybe, such as, you know, the change in price of energy very often affects a bottom line that doesn't have much reserve. They are more affected by changes in taxations, they certainly have less influence on a supply chain. They get drowned by uh, climate regulations more than large companies do because they don't have the capabilities or the staff. You know, they tend to be more dependable on a few large customers or on a few investors or et cetera. So, but I think by and large, the biggest differences are really by industry. If you are in a, you know, classical production company that is very materials intensive, the transition hits you much harder than if you are in a service industry, let's say software, where all you're managing is maybe, you know, the data costs. So, you know, you switch the energy sources for that and
0: and you've already really reduced your emissions. We're talking about a new bit of research that Zurich has put in place. And that is focusing very much in on these opportunities, on places where investment and expansion are going to be key and are going to deliver dividends and results.
1: Zurich Insurance uh, has recently published a paper on climate transition based on insights from um, our sustainability executive survey. We definitely see that the energy sector's transition to net zero is an absolute key and very important, not just because of their own transition and because they have the largest share of global greenhouse gas emissions, but also because other sectors and other industries are dependent on their transition and the new solutions that they can bring. So one thing that we see is also around the electricity and the grid capacity, which definitely needs uh, improvement and further expansion, especially in um, some of the developing uh, world. We also see battery cost and performance, which is definitely clearly in the area that uh, needs uh, additional interest because we see that energy density and charging speeds are improving, but also still we are not there yet to actually supply, for example, heavier long-distance uh, transports. You've done this bit of research and there are
0: huge opportunities, huge issues to deal with in terms of uh, the climate change transition, but you know, fascinating times for
1: the companies that you're working with. Yes, definitely fascinating and uh A lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities at the same time. I think uh, also from the survey, one of the key challenges that we see relates to investments. This is something that we see that there is such an amount of investments needed that neither the private sector nor the public sector can do alone. The other point that we saw from the survey and, and also from the discussion is exactly the technology point. This is high on the interest of the companies and they are looking for new ways that can help to reach their net zero goals. Of course, some of these technologies are already available today and they can be further scaled and improved in the short term. But there are some other things which are not available today, but we will need in the long term in the next decades. Fabienne,
0: I'm sure that's something that you're talking about with companies all the time. So it's getting the tech to scale and it's also getting it financed. There must be frustration, Fabienne, among some of the businesses that you work with that this transition isn't happening fast enough. They're ready to go, and there are hurdles in their way. Many of the hurdles are financial. You know, these are these are big
2: transformation processes. You know, even uh, in industries where the technologies exist, you're, in most cases, talking about completely setting your business system upside down, particularly in the aftermath of pandemic and other crises that have happened. Very, you know, a lot of business are cash-strained. Uh, you know, I, I try to help businesses raise funds. And so I, you know, I struggle with them around that. And the other one, sadly, I'm going to say is, you know, cooperation of governments, the number of, you know, permits and planning authorizations and complies with regulations that you need to invest in a new technology can be really paralyzing.
1: Yes, I I think... uh, we always go back to this, right, the the tur- turbocharging innovation and, and technology and how we have to play together. Because in terms of innovation, of course, there are like these enablers around, which also policymakers can help with. And one other topic I wanted to mention, I think it relates also to technology, is data. Because we see that actually customers and companies, they are needing data-driven digital solutions. And also we we have to invest, or technology needs to play a role in reducing the cost of data as well, because to identify, analyze, mitigate climate risk, this is a very data-driven effort that we need to do. And for this one, it's absolutely crucial that technology is also playing a role. And better data and, and modeling will also increase the confidence in risk assessment and quantification, and ultimately also support decision-making. We've spoken about differences in industry, but are there differences
0: in regions, in how this is being dealt with? The RAA
2: has been a game changer. And now the US stands out. It's been a game changer for many of the climate-related industries, and it's put the U.S. in a league of its own. It's also creating unwanted effects, distortions among industries and technologies, and uh, as always, yes, with intervention. Uh, It's also creating a regional shift in global resources and global finances, for example, away from Europe, that's very problematic. And it's creating a huge pack of debt for the U.S. But still, it's uh, in terms of technologies, it's been an absolute game changer. So, for example, green hydrogen is almost at a negative cost in the U.S. today because of the subsidies. Uh, so, you know, everybody's rushing into it and, and investing into it. But I would still say Europe has the most advanced frameworks in terms of public policy and good, solid regulation, sadly- too much of it in certain fields, so it is also paralyzing some of the capital flow. And then you have very big differences within Europe, and that's holding us back. So if you take the example of, let's say, carbon tax, you know, all of the European countries, including the UK after Brexit, now have some form of carbon tax that they levy through um, ETS schemes, emissions trading schemes. The UK has fallen behind all everybody else uh, in the EU in recent months. Because they've let the price, you know, be regulated by market dynamics. And now there's no longer an incentive for investors to finance green energy. But even within the other EU countries, you know, Sweden has the highest carbon price, carbon tax. It's over, it's about 117 euros per tonne of carbon emitted. Poland is less than one euro per carbon tonne. So we end up having these very fragmented little markets And then we try to regulate, you know, what happens at the border when goods get imported with, you know, different levels of tax rates at the basis. So it gets very complicated. It gets very slow. And China is an interesting case. So as, you know, many autocratic regimes, uh, the policy and execution are very close together. And once the decision is made, things actually get done. Also, in terms of environmental regulation, in certain parts of it, there are way ahead of anything that we have developed in uh, in the U.S. or in Europe. So I think where we land is the U.S. will have all of the big climate tech companies, all the unicorns, all the giants, you know, all the ones that make a lot of money on their technologies. In Europe, we're going to have the best infrastructure, and China will be the place where the technologies get scaled. So they have the mass markets and the big
1: technology developments, you know, the second stage. But I think there is also some commonalities and something that we can be happy about, that climate change is becoming increasingly important everywhere at the same time, and it's also getting integrated into the overall global risk landscape. sounds like, from what Fabienne said, that what we really
0: need is for all those disparate pieces of the jigsaw puzzle from different regions of the world to come together. So how do we create a landscape which allows that to happen,
1: which makes investors want to put their money in. And I think also a very, very important point is, again, collaboration. This should be cross geographies and also cross industries, cross sectors, because then that's how we can foster further innovation and actually also connect to each other and make sure that we are fitting the puzzle pieces together. To Anita's point of, you know, the importance of cooperation, some of the
2: very large initiatives, and I go back to one I'm working closely with x are completely blind to geographies. And x is trying to tap one of those dimensions, which is, you know, how to really scale renewable power at a level that will make a difference in the transition. And just very quickly about the project, it's generating solar and wind in Morocco, in North Africa, and it's transporting it to the UK directly into the UK grid through some C-cables that have yet to be built and installed. You know, sometimes the corporates are way ahead of the game in terms of legislations and governments and all that. It slows you down because you have to deal with different settings. But the business model is one that
1: is not bound by geography in any way. As being part of a large uh, multinational organization, I think we can feel it and we also benefit from it because some of the, the support and services that we can offer to our customers or we can work with them, it doesn't matter where they are based. Globally, we are able to help them. A conversation's changing because we're now seeing very clearly the impact
0: of climate change on all of our lives. Does that change the conversations
1: that you're having, Anita? People see it and people feel it that there is something which is changing. And of course, companies also feel it in their own businesses that they have to be prepared. So while we are talking a lot about, uh, about mitigation and transition plans, at the same time, we definitely have to make sure that um, we are also building resilience and we are implementing adaptation measures and being prepared for the impacts of climate change. But we see that our customers are also becoming more and more aware of it and they request and want some support. What does the future look like, Fabian?
2: Future, future or 2050 or what future? (laughs) Let's start with 2050. I think we've missed our 1.5 target, but we've made our, you know, something short of 2%. We have a world population in 2050 that's going to be about 10 billion people. And in my scenario, everybody has their basic needs covered in terms of food and water and basic living arrangements. And our carbon footprint has become ridiculously small and why is that? So I think we're living in, in homes that are fully self-sufficient in terms of energy and then built with recyclable materials. We have heat pumps and integrated solar panels and etc. All the big industry processes, a big part of them has been electrified and all of them are powered by renewable energy or some type of biofuel, let's say, for those where... um Electricity is not an option. We're transporting our people and our goods in ways that are 80 percent electrified and also renewable. So we fly net zero, we ship net zero. Transportation in general is going to be radically different And, and you know, the last one of the big topic of basic need for the world population where I, I have a, which I have a hard time with is uh, food. I think we are moving through a GMO world. Uh, in any case, there is no more you know, meat-based protein, or at least not uh, live animals. We've changed the protein intake of the, of the world population, and we have synthetic meat and other forms of food. We've completely integrated AI in the regenerative farming and processes, and so we use less water and less resources to produce the food we need to feed uh, 10 billion people.
0: That is an awful lot to
1: achieve in 27 years. Anita, what about you, 2050? Fabienne's uh, future idea might might be correct that we don't meet the 1.5 degree warming. However, we should not uh, abandon and should not drop this threshold. I think it is absolutely important that we are continuing to work towards it. I try to keep my climate optimism. I think we must not lose hope and we know what needs to be done. We know that how to get there, we just need to accelerate and solve the challenges that are in front of us. So I really hope that we will manage to do that.
0: Fabienne, need to thank you so much for joining us on the Risk Opportunity podcast. I think it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you both. And clearly, you know, this is a huge issue to tackle, but collaboration is happening. And though there is obviously a long way to go and frustration that things are taking an awfully long time in some cases, there's still a huge amount of optimism that we are on the right track. Thank you for listening to The Risk Opportunity. Please join us again soon for the fourth and final episode in the series. In the meantime, please do follow, rate and review the podcast. It really helps others find it. Head to zurich.com forward slash climate to discover more about accelerating climate transition and climate resilience and download the latest reports. The Risk Opportunity was brought to you by Zurich Insurance Group.